Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to and beyond fireside chats. My name is Kasha and today I'll be speaking to Les Carlisle, and beyond conservation manager. Les has been with Beyond since the company's beginnings in the early 1990s and has 40 years of conservation experience to his name. Welcome, Les. Hi, Kes. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's such a pleasure. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Now, Les, you've dedicated over 30 years to wildlife conservation. Can you tell us a little bit about where your career started and... Um, why the fascination with, with conservation? What was it that made you dedicate basically half a lifetime to this worthy cause? Yeah, I've been really privileged, Kessa. You know, I grew up in the, in the Nelspruit area, which is near the Kruger National Park on the eastern parts of South Africa. And my dad did the water supply um, for a lot of the camps in the Kruger Park. So from a very early age, I had access to the Kruger Park and to areas that guests and tourists didn't normally get to. Um, so I had some wonderful stories of trips into the Kruger Park with my dad as a schoolboy. And my interest in wildlife was obviously kindled then. And I worked with animals um, at the local veterinary hospital on holidays when I wasn't playing sport. Um, and I've always had this interest in, in creepy crawlies and catching things, um, snakes and lizards and spiders. And uh, caught everything I could when I was a small uh, boy at school. And this interest continued when I went into the Air Force. My first um, posting in the Air Force was to Air Force Base Hoodsprate, which was a, a base on the eastern side of the country, not far from the Kruger National Park and not far from the private nature reserves, the Timbavati and Klaseri, um, and obviously then the Kruger National Park. So very privileged to have been grown up in an area where wildlife is one of the main activities and wildlife viewing and wildlife management was one of the main activities. So I think that's where the interest started. And then um, in the Air Force, um, I was involved in security at Air Force Base Hoodsprate and we established a game reserve in the security area around the military base. And in this game reserve, a researcher who was doing research on cheetah's ability to hunt after they'd been captively reared. And he brought two cheetah into the game reserve around the Air Force Base and released them. And one of these cheetah, not having read the emails about how he was supposed to hunt, tackled a young giraffe. And when he hit the giraffe, he hit it so hard that he broke one of his canines off. And um, this uh, broken canine was a cause of concern for the researcher. So he asked me if I knew anybody that we could use to, to treat this cheetah. So we phoned the vet that I'd worked for as a schoolboy in Nelspruit, who was a wildlife, the vet specialized in wildlife. And Blackie came up and we immobilized the cheetah and put him in the dentist chair at the Air Force Base's dental <laughs> surgery. And we cut the cheetah's tooth, which was really quite an experience as a 19-year-old national serviceman um, being involved in this incredibly exciting wildlife experience. So. So these things all conspired to, to pull me directly into wildlife as a career. That's quite a story. I can. I was just imagining that probably those those experiences working at the local vet didn't involve um, the usual dogs and cats. So your dental cheetah story is certainly <laughs> quite different from the usual experience. <laughs> yeah, well, I was very privileged. And I mean, some of the other things um, we did with those cheetah in the early days, there were five of them together and they were kept in a farmhouse and they were 
prevented from leaving the, the courtyard at the back of the house by a door. Um, and the four were, were very boisterous and bouncing around and jumping on each other. And they knocked the door over and it fell on one of their little sisters. Her name was Aqua. She broke her hip. So, so this little cheetah had a broken hip. And once she reached maturity, um, we operated on her and replaced that hip um, with a metal hip from Purbright in England, from the guys who were making hip replacements for humans. So I was involved in trying to teach Aqua to hunt again, teach her to run, get her back up to speed so that she was in a position to be released with her brothers and sisters. So really a, a, an amazing experience as a youngster. Les, you've been with and beyond since the very beginnings of the company. Um, you've been involved in everything from setting up um, and beyond Pinder Private Game Reserve, the company's um, first reserve to a lot of community development work and then on to um, obviously taking the lead in conservation. What is it about and beyond that initially attracted you to the company and what has made you stay with the company for so long? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've always tried to focus on is, is try and make a difference with your life and uh, finding ways to make a difference. In, in the early days of my career as a wildlife translocator, it was the excitement of creating new populations in new properties and the unbelievable pleasure of seeing a giraffe walk out of a truck onto a piece of property that hasn't had giraffe on it for a hundred years. And um, that kind of satisfaction of making a real difference to that environment has always been uh, one of the drivers in my life. So um, the history of and beyond uh, started in two different places uh, with two different groups of people. Dave Varty at Londolozzi had, had developed a model of, of sharing the benefits from this top-end tourism experience with his staff. And he'd built a staff village at Londolozzi, which had schools and clinics. And the staff were really happy. And the whole process was working extremely well. He needed to try and see if this model would work, if the staff could live in the village where they came from and commute into work every day so that we could use conservation to support the villages outside of the parks. Um, so the Londolozzi top-end tourism model benefiting communities uh, Dave was looking for a piece of land to, to go and try this model on and see if he could develop a game reserve, make it commercially viable, make a difference to all of the wildlife, and make a difference to the communities. Uh, and simultaneous to Dave's uh, development at, uh, in the Sabi Sands with Londolozzi, there was an agricultural economist and an agriculturalist down in KwaZulu-Natal who was also an estate agent selling uh, properties and helping set them up. Um, a guy called uh, Kevin Leo Smith and Kevin and Trevor Coppen were really good friends and they were neighbors of mine when I was running a little reserve at Carcliffe and Trevor and Kevin used to come across for beers on a Sunday evening in a brine. We'd sit under the trees on the edge of the Carcliffe River um, chatting about how we would develop a game reserve on this particular piece of land that they had identified south of Nkusi Game Reserve. Uh, which was in a Tel Park Sport Reserve on Lake St. Lucia. So it linked wetland to wetland, which was a key conservation requirement. Um, and the state had identified the land for potential expropriation, the then apartheid government, but they obviously were running out of money and had many much bigger fish to fry at the time. Kevin was trying to find a model that he could apply to this land that would unlock the economic potential of the land, and Trevor Coppen, who was involved in the development of Sudwana Bay Lodge and a community partnership lodge, he had the strong bent for community participation in tourism. So you had these two groups of people, one in KwaZulu-Natal, 
with an unbelievable piece of land that was desperate for a model. And the other one was, was Dave Varty at Londolozzi, who had a, a model that was looking for a piece of land. And the only missing component of that whole development was the financing. And along came Alan Bernstein, who at the time was working for J.H. Isaacs International, and he developed a funding model for funding conservation using venture capital. So he had a, a potential funding model. He'd gone to see Dave Varty because the Londolozzi model was the type of thing he was keen to use. They became really good friends. And they were sitting around the fire discussing where they could do this development of their first model. And Trevor Coppin at the time had a had employed a marketing lady, Jane Cunningham, who knew Dave Varty. So Jane linked Trevor and Kevin to Alan and Dave, and the four of them sat around the fire, and voila, and beyond was born. So for the first time, we had an organization that was going to make a difference to wildlife, was going to secure the land, and it was going to benefit the people that live around the land. The care of the land, care of the wildlife, um, and care of the people mantra was born. And that's what's kept me focused for the last 30 years. And that's what's, it's for me, it's been an unbelievable privilege to be part of an organization that's been making a difference in all these spheres for so long. It's certainly a model that has become tried and tested over the years and one that increasingly more companies and um, organizations are using these days. So very exciting to have been at, in, at the very beginning of it all. Certainly a case of all the elements coming together at the right time. And beyond grew from one game reserve and and today it's become a company that owns and manages 29 lodges all over the world. Um, but surely there must have been a whole set of challenges in the early days at the very beginning when we when you were first involved in setting up Pinda Private Game Reserve. Um, and I'm sure you've got very many very exciting stories to tell around that. Uh, thanks, Cass. Yeah, I mean, that, that privilege of being part of something as exciting as as Pinder was in those early days was quite remarkable. You, you've got to put it in context. Um, remember that 1990 was four years before uh, the first elections in South Africa. It was the year that Mandela was released. The area that had been identified for conservation reasons, because it linked Mkuzi Game Reserve to False Bay, it was a key component of the then Greater St. Lucia Wetland Park, which today is Isimangalisu World Heritage Site. Um, it was absolutely key land, but it was being developed at a time when that area of northern KwaZulu-Natal was almost in low-scale civil war. Um, the conflict between the two political rivals in that area for political power as emancipation of the rural um, disenfranchised communities was coming online and the potential of elections was coming. Uh, there was more and more conflict for dominance in the region. The thing with and beyond is that it was the first international investment into South Africa that had the support of both the nationalist government and the ANC. And that was strategic in the way... Um, and that was one of the things that, that made it so remarkable. So we had the finance, we had the model, we had the land, but the land didn't have all of the animals that we would require for tourism. So my background being in wildlife translocation, having spent 10 years in, in catching animals and translocating wildlife, um, the reason why I was employed by um, my then neighbors, Trevor, uh, Kevin Leo Smith, to build Pinder was because of my, my translocation background. So the first thing we had to do was, was catch giraffe and put them onto the property to supplement the numbers of giraffe that existed on two of the 12 farms that we had had general game on them. 
two of the 12 farms that made up Pinda. The rest we had to restock. So we caught everything from wildebeest and zebra and suni and we caught a python on a property called malachite um, which had been earmarked for conversion to sugar farming and all the wildlife on the property had been developed by Mike Rattray of Mala Mala fame and he had a really big rhino population which we were very keen on and was about uh, 40 kilometers from Pinda near Mkuzi town so we went along and bought all the wildlife on the property because we knew they were going to be plowing it into the ground and turning it into sugar farm. Um, we caught all the rhino first, we caught the giraffe, we caught the um, impala, the inyala, the wildebeest, the zebra. And one day we were driving along looking for more animals to see what we were going to need to catch them when we, when we found this python, 4.2 meter python. Wow. And uh, we had a really big cooler box in the back of the vehicle, which I left in the vehicle for when we went shopping. And uh, we had nothing else to put this python in, so we folded him into the cooler box. And I sat on the lid of the cooler box, holding on the handles to keep him in while we drove home at high speed. My wife was terrified that this thing was going to push me off the lid and end up in the car with us. So we rushed across to Pinda with a python in a cooler box and released it into the uh, Pinda North where Forest Lodge is today. Um, and it was really remarkable to see this massive 4.2 meter python steaming off into what is now a protected area um, of Pinda, having come from a property that was potentially going to be plowed into the ground. So that rhino translocation, by the way, from Malachite, we moved 21 rhino in one day, which at the time was the biggest translocation of rhino uh, ever to have taken place in the country. And I think it's, it's still, so it was quite pioneering and quite remarkable stuff in an unsettled time in South Africa's history. And uh, we really were making waves in the way we were doing things. Um, the predator reintroduction that we did had never been tried before. Um, we'd set up a process of making sure that we got the cheetah established on the reserve and that they were breeding before we reintroduced lions because all the previous cheetah reintroductions onto established lion populations had not worked. Um, the lions just uh, sorted the cheetah out once they were reintroduced because the cheetah didn't know the lie of the land and the lions did. So we thought if we turn that round and we reintroduce the cheetah first, get them breeding, then bring the lions in, there's, the cheetahs have a much better chance. And it actually worked really well. Um, so we pioneered reintroduction techniques for predators uh, we also pioneered the reintroduction of, of lions onto, um, made up from different prides. Traditionally, if you put lions together in a boma from different prides, they fight and kill each other. So we used sedation to mix lions from different prides to see if they would accept each other to hopefully provide some sort of uh, pride for release. And that was also successful. While in some cases they didn't necessarily form a new pride, they certainly accepted each other. Um, and didn't kill each other, which was a really good thing, which meant that you could release all of the lions that you'd been holding together in the pens into the reserve. Um, we engaged the communities and got them to come and see the lions in the bomas before they were released so that they could see that a fence could actually contain these things. Because that was part of the uh, relationship that we had with the communities was to try and make sure that they understood the reason why we were going to be putting up fences was to protect their cattle rather than to keep um, the, the predators in. But an interesting time dealing with communities who at that stage, part of the apartheid system, were, were the enemy. And in fact, they were in another country. We were in uh, Natal, which was a, a province, and they were in KwaZulu-Natal, which was a homeland. And effectively, mm -hmm. under the apartheid system, they were two different countries. 
So it was really remarkable times. Definitely a lot of stories to tell there and a lot of memorable moments. Um, Les, we've spoken a little bit. You've mentioned wildlife translocation um, a number of times. I've spoken about being a wildlife translocator. Can you explain to us what exactly does that mean? Um, what is translocation? Why is it done? And how are, this, how are species selected for translocation? Okay, I think... Um yeah, that's a, it's a concept. Wildlife translocation is a management activity. Um, and when you look at um, any form of production, if you look at cattle production, you remove, you're producing animals to be able to remove the excess, the excess of which is your product. Um, and ecosystems are no different. Um, ecosystems have finite resources in the form of grass and water and space. And animals have different uh, food requirements. Um, in the case of the herbivores, um, you manage the grass that grows and you make sure that the numbers of animals that are feeding on that grass don't exceed the pace at which the grass can go. Because if you do, then obviously you start reducing the grass, you reduce the food, and eventually you'll have a die-off. Identifying which animals get translocated, in the case of mass herd animals, um, it really is just a, a matter of maintaining the sex ratios and trying to catch whole herds at a time. But the broad strokes are that you would catch whole herds in the field and take them straight to the new destination and release them out the back of the truck um, into the new destination. And the way we do mass capture, which is the one form of translocation, is you use a helicopter to herd the animals and you build a big funnel out of opaque plastic that the animals can't see through and you herd them into this funnel and when they come into the mouth um, you run with curtains across that gap to close it so they end up enclosed in a triangle of opaque plastic the one side of that triangle is quite narrow and you normally curve it so the animals look like they can't see around the corner so they run to see what's around the corner and then they run straight into the truck you close the door and you have them caught so but to answer your question directly on, on what, how you identify the animals for translocation, in managed populations, um, you will identify specific herds that are surplus to your requirement and that are putting pressure on the, on the resource. So in the case of elephants, um, the, the elephant removals that we did once our numbers exceeded 100, um, was we took whole breeding herds of elephants uh, with a whole age structure and we immobilize them individually. You start with a matriarch, she goes down, then you immobilize the rest of the herd, load them in trucks, and then take them to their new destination. Identifying individual animals is normally done by the managers on the reserve. So you have two considerations, both the population that's that's the donor population or source population and the environment in which they're going to be um, re-established. So you need to understand the population dynamics that are going to be best for that re-establishment. Obviously, there are a lot of variables here at play, and you're often dealing with large animals, as you mentioned, elephants, rhinos, and wild animals. Um, it must be really tricky in certain instances to try and get everything working together um, at the right time and in the right way. What is the most difficult translocation that you've ever taken part in? Oh, goodness, Cass. I think every <laughs> one of them have their challenges. I can uh, imagine. And the challenges are varied. <laughs> um, the first time, uh, when we started catching giraffe uh, back in the 1980s, 
Um, getting the dosage right for giraffe capture was a real challenge. Um, and we had to run after every giraffe and rope it um, to pull it down so we could control the way it fell. So the early days of giraffe capture was extremely physical. You had mm -hmm. to be extremely fit and you had to have really good drug dosages. For me, one of the most challenging ones was I went and fetched 19 Cape Buffalo in Texas in the USA and brought them back to South Africa. And that started with a road trip mm -hmm. from Dallas through Louisiana and Mississippi and across Alabama into Georgia and to the docks wow. in Savannah and Georgia. So I was alone, um, so I had to help with a capture and filling the, um, the shipment. We had um, two pallets with six crates on them, and we put these 19 buffalo into six wooden crates, put them onto two big 40-ton um, uh, trucks, which we then drove across the southern states with. It was a 1,400-kilometer trip, and then loaded them on a ship in Savannah and Georgia, 19 days at sea until we got them to Cape Town, another day sailing up the coast, in fact, two days until we got to Durban, where we offloaded them. And those disease-free Cape Buffalo, as they were, which was the reason for bringing them back to South Africa, they'd been breeding in zoos and wildlife parks in, in the States for 20 or 30 years, so they hadn't been exposed to the spread of disease um, in, in South Africa, foot and mouth being the one disease, tuberculosis um, being the other, and a disease called corridor disease, which existed down in Brazil and Natal. So these were the first disease-free buffalo that carried none of those three main diseases and then a host of others that they mm -hmm. tested for. They were sold on auction at a, at a resort in South Africa called Sun City. Um, and these buffalo were the first disease-free buffalo sold on auction at Sun City. It was really quite a quite an event historically to be part of. Um, so it really was, that was really quite challenging as a, as a translocation. The physical work and the stress of being alone, you have a buffalo go down that's not feeding, how do you treat it? You don't have anybody you can talk to. In those days, there was no cell phone, there was no communication from the ship. I had to try and make it work on my own. So, so that was quite challenging. Um, it took us years to put together the GAR translocation in India. I think four years in the planning and another year of, because we split the loads into two seasons, so five years before we finally translocated the, the 50 GAR in India. And that was quite a marathon. But it was a really professional team. And, and the, um, the team that I'd assembled was Jeff Cook from Natal Parks Board, head of game capture unit and the doyen of wildlife uh, veterinarians, Dr. Dave Cooper, who, who remains a very dear friend and one of the most incredible veterinarians around. So I had, we had a team and we could debate things when things went wrong. We had lots of issues to deal with that GAR translocation, lots of training and capacity building into India. Um, but when you're doing it as a team, you can always work your way through it. And I think the big thing with translocation is just to always know that you have to make a plan. You can't mm -hmm. say, sorry, now we can't. Once the animals are caught, you've got to make a plan to get them to their destination. It's as simple as that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So no, uh, or we can't is no, no part of the vocabulary. It's all about how and when. And you just have to plug on until you find a solution. Um, quite fun, quite challenging. Mm. Liz, with all the challenges that come with, with that, um, I can imagine that it must also be incredibly rewarding at the end. And um, probably also comes with its own humorous moments. 
Are there any particularly sort of humorous stories or any moments that, that have touched you particularly and really brought a lump to your throat that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, yeah, with every one of them we've had, if you don't have a sense of humor, you mustn't get involved in wildlife <laughs> transportation or conservation. They're both pretty serious activities, but you've got to be able to laugh, otherwise you ain't going to get through the day, because often the, the pressures are really huge, and uh, if, you can't, if you can't laugh about them, you ain't going to make it through the day. I recall one of the, one of the incidents when I was driving with a truckload of elephants from, from the Kruger National Park. We'd been to fetch baby elephants, sort of... Um, Five, five-year-old elephants, um, and we were driving along with uh, six elephants in the back of an uh, eight-ton truck. And the elephants had been very calm for about uh, three-quarters of an hour in the back of the truck. It was normally quite boisterous, and you could feel the truck pumping around and the odd trumpet. I was driving myself, and I was coming up to a T-junction, and it was a very quiet uh, part of the main road system that we were driving on. Mm -hmm. And because the elephants were so quiet, I just slowly eased around the T-junction, didn't stop at the stop street and moved into the main road. And the traffic inspector walked straight out in front of me with his hand up and stopped the truck. <laughs> and I thought, oh, here we go. I haven't stopped at the stop street. Now I'm going to have to pay a fine and all the things that go with breaking the traffic rule. And the traffic inspector had this sort of gloat on his face as he came walking up to the door of the truck and he grabbed the handle and pulled himself up to my window because he had to stand up on the step. Yes. And as his head reached my head height, the elephants started trumpeting and shoving each other around in the back of the truck. And the cop got such a fright, he jumped off the truck and signaled me to keep going. So my bacon got saved by the elephants in the back of the truck on that day. I didn't have to pay the fine. Uh, really quite hilarious. I laughed for a good few hours after that. <laughs> oh, so, certainly a lot of memorable moments in a, in a very long career. Um, and Les, on a, on a personal note, in the, in the last couple of years, you've had the opportunity to work with your sons in the field. Um, is, does, so conservation obviously runs in the blood in your family. Do you see this becoming a family business? You know, both my boys were born in, in Pinda in Zululand, um, so they were exposed to wildlife from a very early age. I've got photographs of them, you know, catching lions with us when they're three and four years old. So um, my oldest son did an engineering degree and then took some time off from his studies to, to work for a professional catcher operation in the uh, Pinda area. And my youngest son is a passionate conservationist and has always been keen on, on, on wildlife. He'd done an honors degree in zoology. And at one of his university breaks, he came down to help catch rhinos for the Rhinos Without Borders project. And Damien was working for Grant Tracy, who was doing the capture for us. So I had both sons with me on a capture operation, um, which was really one of my proudest moments, um, working with, with both of your sons making a real difference for rhinos um, and having having that family connection was quite something. That's a truly amazing family legacy to have. Les, on a more sobering note, um, obviously the coronavirus has had quite an impact on, on conservation efforts and on funding for conservation as a whole. What do you see the next steps in conservation post the virus as hopefully things start to open up again? 
I think that there's a there's a few things um, that the coronavirus has taught us. Um, some of the things we'd started doing uh, before the before the virus struck, which was cooperation and and working together for conservation outcomes is going to have to be part of the future and it's going to be people working together that don't agree with each other on everything but they agree on a specific part of the conservation outcome and they have to focus on that park their differences on the things they disagree on because nobody agrees on everything in conservation and as soon as you allow one aspect of your differences um, to overshadow the things that you actually agree on, you can't work together. So private sector has to work with the state. Different private sector organizations have to work together. Different conservancies have to work together. You know, conservation is a, is a mosaic of different uh, landowners, conservation agreements, national parks, world heritage sites, but they all have one outcome, which is a conservation outcome. And I think for me, the biggest single... Um, learning out of the COVID-19 situation is going to be that we have to work better together mm-hmm. to be able to secure conservation areas into the future. And we're going to have to work with people we currently don't like and people we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. But we're going to have to shoulder our differences, park our differences, and work together on the things we do agree on so that we can have conservation, sustainable conservation outcomes. And Les, on a, on a more personal note, where are you looking forward to traveling once you're able to travel again? Oh, goodness. The world's our oyster, isn't it? For, for me, um, going back up into, into East Africa and seeing the massive migrations and that massive of wildlife uh, biomass moving around in a, in a largely uh, natural system is, is really quite something. Um, I'm really desperate to go back and see that. In the South American situation, there's some quite remarkable areas in the South in Patagonia um, that, that I'd really like to get to see that I haven't been to yet. Um, and of course, there are quite a few species I'd love to get to see, one of them being the snow leopard in, in India and then the smaller red panda in, in Bhutan. Desperate to go and get to mm-hmm. see one of those. So still some remarkable places in the world to go and see. And I, I hope many people are thinking like I am that once this thing's behind us, we've got to start using our presence in these areas to secure the areas better than we did before the virus. Because securing them through tourism alone is one way. We have to secure them through tourism and other forms of revenue so that we are a bit buffered against the potential impact of tourism in the future. Certainly something good to look forward to for the future. And obviously we all hope that will be something we can all do very soon. Les, it has been an... Thanks, Cass. (laughs) Thank you, Les. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. We will be chatting to you again in episode two of the NB on Fireside Chats when we talk about the relationship between communities and conservation. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Cass. It's been a real privilege and a pleasure to chat to you as well. Cheers.